So I, I, uh, I didn't have an opportunity to print out my notes. I usually have paper notes. Not that you guys care, but... So today, I have to use my tablet, and you know, I figure I should maybe button this all the way up and be a hipster. Half, half the people are going, you know, I don't even know what a hipster is. But I gotta figure out how to turn it on. Oh, there it is. No, it's not that bad. So we're continuing our study through Paul's letter to the Corinthian churches, his, uh, what we call one Corinthians. Uh, as we talked about last week, you may remember, or in previous weeks, this could have been Paul's second, even third letter to the Corinthians, but we call it 1 Corinthians. So you guys are really quiet, which is really good, except for I'm still trying to... Exactly. Exactly. I have these sausage fingers as well that, there it goes. I should have done this before I called you back to your seat. Huh? So today at church, there was this awkward time when the pastor couldn't open his, his... there it goes. One Corinthians chapter six. We're going to look at the first eleven verses of one Corinthians six. So let's read those things together, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. One Corinthians chapter six. Paul writes, "When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world?" And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? But brother goes to brother against brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And Father, I pray that you would help us today to receive with meekness your implanted word. Father, I, I really believe that you want to do a work in us to both corporately and individually bring us to a fresh work of repentance. 
that we might experience that refreshing of your Holy Spirit. Lord, do this for us. Lord, we can't do it for ourselves, Lord. We can't work it up, Lord. I I can't make it happen, Lord. You have to do this by your Holy Spirit. So would you use your word to convince us of your trustworthiness? Please, Lord, we pray it. In Jesus' name, everyone who agrees says, Jesus said this. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What would it look like if we actually believed that? What would it look like if we actually believe that we have everlasting life? How how would it change the way we choose things? How would it change the way we view view people's view of us? How would it change the way we spend our time, our treasure, our talent? How would it change the way we treat each other? If we actually believed that we have eternal life through Jesus, how would it look differently in our lives? Because this is really what Paul's getting at in this section. In fact, if you noticed, I hope as I read this, you picked up the tone that Paul's a little bit like gobsmacked. That the people that he's writing to, this church that he really does love dearly, this church that, as we'll see, he's convinced God is doing a work in, that this church does things that he has to say, why would you think that's okay? See, here's the reality. Like the Corinthian church, like the believers in Corinth, we get so short-sighted. And we think that Jesus saves us so we can have our best life now. That's a dodgy book, by the way. We think that, that, that Jesus saves us, and we quote this, that we may have life and that more abundantly. And he does, but we think, listen, that somehow, some way, if we do just the right thing in just the right way, we're going to have all that right now. So anytime there's a challenge where we have to suffer or things get difficult, we go, nah, that's not my best life. And Paul's confronting that head on. See, the reality is, That what God has for us, what God's done for us, this issue of the kingdom of God, God's rule in our lives. And Jesus dies not so that that he can make the kingdom better. He dies so that we can be made worthy to be in the kingdom. And this reality of the kingdom of God, Paul's already talked about this a little bit in the sense of the, the already. That right now Christ reigns in us. And he rules over our lives. And so we want to walk in that. We want to even enjoy the goodness of Christ's rule in our lives right now. But he's also, in this context that we just read, going to talk about the not yet. That the reality of the kingdom is a already and not yet reality. And that not yet, listen, the not yet reality is meant to have an impact 
right now. That future realities are meant to impact and meant to bring a present transformation. So what does this look like? Well, we're going to look at, I think, three big things. We're going to learn three big ways that the gospel, the the truth, the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done, three big ways that the gospel is meant to transform us here and now. And the first way is this, that we learn to resolve conflict in-house. Now, here's the thing I want you to think about. Paul's going to talk about how the short-sightedness of the Corinthians is affecting them both in the courtroom and the bedroom. We'll talk about the bedroom in the following weeks. But we're talking about here in the courtroom. Apparently there's a situation, probably a dispute about property, where two believers in Corinth take each other to court. Some, someone takes the other to court. And, and when they're going to court here, if you, if you, if you don't know this, in a, in a Greek court... So in a Jewish court, you, might, you may know that in a Jewish court, it would take place, the judgment would take place at the gates of the city. And so it was meant to be public, but also it was kind of like you would pass by. You're not meant to sit at the gate of the city unless uh, you, have, you need a judgment. But in the Greek context, the judgments happen in the center of the city. It's like court TV. Everyone sits around and watches and goes, ooh, ah, what's going to happen? And so when Paul's talking about a court case, he's not talking, don't think about how it is for us now where you kind of go into a private place and, and you have a judge or a, a jury who, who make decisions about your case. It's not like this. This is a public, open thing where, in this case, a Christian is disputing with another Christian. It's like Facebook, but legally. And so Paul's saying there's a problem with this. And there's a problem because you, you are airing your disputes when you should be resolving those things in-house. And he really gives us three reasons, or at least I should say, I think we're going to see three reasons why we should be convinced that we can resolve our conflicts in-house. So, so look at verse 1 again. Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go before the unrighteous instead of the saints? We'll talk about who the unrighteous are a little bit later on. But the saints, let's make sure we're clear about who are the saints. The saints are not those occasional holy person that, like according to Catholic tradition, has to do at least two miracles in their lives. That was just kind of funny, because like, isn't one miracle impressive enough? I mean, come on. But they've got to do at least two miracles in their lives, and they have certain criteria to reach sainthood. But actually the word saint, and it's really obvious in the context, I hope to you guys to see this, it's not about somebody who's done better than other believers. A saint simply means a holy one or a set-apart one. To be a saint means that you're set set apart by God for God. That's a saint. doesn't mean we should never honor people, believers of the past who have done great things or have shown great faith. No, we want to honor that and note that and even see that as an example. But we don't exalt them to a higher position. No, our sainthood, yours and mine, is based solely on what Christ has done. So when Paul here is talking about the unrighteous and the saints, the saints in this idea are believers, the church, basically. And so he's saying, okay, why would you go to the unrighteous when you can go to those who are set apart by God and for God? And then he brings up this issue he, he brings up two matter, he makes these matter-of-fact statements that I got I to gotta be honest, when I read these again this, this week, I was thinking, 
Okay, how does this work again? Then Paul says to the Corinthian church, to two believers, and this applies to us, he says, don't you realize you're going to judge the world and you're going to judge angels? What? Now, it's interesting because didn't he say just uh, last chapter, it's not your place to judge the world. He said that, isn't it? And now he's saying you're going to judge the world. One is before, in chapter 5, he's talking about right now, the way you operate, your priority needs to be the inside. You let God be the one who judges the outside. Here in this context, Paul's talking about a reality of, he, he says, one day, when the Lord returns, there's going to come a time when we're going to be involved in this work of judgment. Now, angels here are probably referring to fallen angels or demons. And, but but here's, here's the reality. When we think of judgment, we tend to limit it as, uh, as correcting that which is wrong, Right? So we've seen judgment means like you did something wrong and the judgment is now you, you have to pay this price. That's how we tend to look at it, right? But actually judgment is bigger than that. It's the idea of justice. It's the idea of things as they ought to be. And so what Paul's saying, he's saying, don't you recognize this? Don't you recognize that soon and very soon we will experience God's perfect justice? We'll be involved in it. We'll be those who who know what it's like to only have received justice. We'll be like, we'll be able to know what it's like to only do justly. See, right now we try to do justly, and sometimes we fail. And right now, no matter how well we try to act, we have injustices done to us. Amen? Is that not our experience? But soon and very soon, Paul's saying, no, listen, this is what's going to happen. He's not saying, he's not trying to put Christians on a power trip. Yeah. We're, we're going to be the head honchos. We're going to judge. We're going to rule. It's not a power trip. He's trying to say, listen, one day, all you saints will permanently and, and, and finally be able to receive and give God's perfect justice. And so he, here's his point, right? Here's his point at the, at the end of verse 3. He says, how much more than the matters pertaining to this life. If you know there's a God of perfect justice, why would you not look to walk justly now? Why would you not look to act as you should between one another? That's his point. Interesting. Here's what Jesus says along this idea of one day us being involved in God's perfect justice. He says in Matthew chapter 19, Truly I say to you, in the new world... When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you, will have, uh, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. For many who are first will be last and the last first. Some theologians call this the great reversal. We're all those who have been victims become conquerors. God's going to make every wrong thing right. And so if we have that kind of hope, if we know that to be the case, Paul's point to the Corinthians, if you know this, why would you not think a little bit of land dispute you can't figure out? Now as I read this, you might be thinking, yeah, but John, things are more complicated than that. It's not always that easy. Well, I think Paul knows that. Look at verse 4. He continues to, to challenge these guys. In verse 4, he says, So if, if, if you have such cases, 
Why do, you not lay, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Okay, if you have cases that need to be dealt with, he's not saying sweep them under the rug, act like they're no big deal. He's saying, but why would you go to those who have no standing, who don't understand God's measure of justice? Why would you do that? He says, I say this to your shame. He says, notice, and this is a real jab here by Paul. He says, can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers? Can you imagine if after service one of you comes up and says, hey, I got this problem with another brother. And can you, can, you, can you mediate for us? And I said, sorry, we're all too stupid. We don't know how to do that. And I would use that voice as well when I said it, just because it would be fun. You would go, really? You've got to be joking. Really? Nobody here can help me figure out this dispute between me and my brother. Nobody. Nope. Sorry. It would be ridiculous. It would be as stupid as the voice I just put on. And Paul's saying, what, what's wrong with you? He said, well, how can this be? He said, I'm saying this to your shame. Now, it's interesting here when he says, uh, you know, look, is there nobody wise among you? It, it, the reason he's so shocked with this is like, listen, if you follow Jesus, and the Corinthians said they follow Jesus, you actually know wisdom incarnate. You know wisdom become flesh. God's perfect wisdom walking on this earth. You know him personally if you know Jesus. In fact, listen to what Jesus says. The Son of Man has come. I think we read this last week too in a different context, but it says in Luke chapter 7, Jesus says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friends of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus yet justified is, or yet wisdom is justified by all her children. In other words, judge the results. When I'm walking in wisdom by befriending these sinners, what happens? God saves them. But also, listen, we have this great promise. It's one of the earliest New Testament promises in James chapter 1. Listen, if anyone, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously with, to all without reproach and it will be given him. That's a pretty amazing promise, isn't it? So, so you can see where Paul's kind of going, guys, why can't you resolve this thing in-house? In we, we, we will experience God's perfect justice. We serve a God of perfect justice. We're going to experience that perfect justice. Why would you not pursue that now as much as you can? And we have access to God's generous wisdom. James doesn't say ask and God will go, here's a little sprinkle of wisdom for you. He's going to pour it out. I'm going to give you more than you need. You know, it's funny. Often we don't pray like this, for this. You know why? Not because we don't believe. I think we, the reason we don't pray is because we do believe. We believe that we're wiser than God. We believe that our actions are more potent than God's answer. We have a false faith. I'm, I'm preaching it myself as much as anybody else. But Paul's saying, what are you doing? Listen, if there's a conflict, seek God for wisdom. Now, again, let's be honest. Sometimes things get really tough. And Paul's not naive to this. There's, there's nothing in this context that would tell us that Paul's saying, oh, don't worry about it, it doesn't mean anything. That's not his point. His point is, listen, part of how we demonstrate that we are being changed by God's past and future promises is we learn to resolve conflict in-house. Look at verse 6. 
Paul says, but brother goes to law against brother and before unbelievers. There you are in the middle of the city complaining about each other, right in front of all these unbelievers. And he says this in verse 7. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. It's a fail, is what it literally says. Now, now, just to maybe be clear too, Paul was not afraid to use a court system. You read the book of Acts, you see Paul appealed to the court system or the law uh, when he was being treated unjustly. This is not saying the court system is bad and this is why you shouldn't use it. That's not Paul's point. Nor is he saying that you shouldn't try to resolve conflicts or even shouldn't look for settlements where someone has to do the right thing. That's not what he's saying here either. But what he's saying here is he's saying, listen, you guys aren't thinking about this. You guys are, are so focused, you're so short-sighted on the here and now that you're allowing this conflict to overflow into the public realm. Again, doesn't that sound like Facebook? Social media? You see, here, the problem is, is that when unbelievers witness our unresolved conflicts, we have already failed. Now, I got conflict. You got conflict. All God's kids got, we all got conflict. But how do we deal with conflict? We deal with it in a way that is centered on who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That's what models for us what we should do, and that's what motivates for us what we should do. In the last part of verse 7, what does he write? He says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Instead, you wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Do do you see the questions he's asking? These These are rhetorical questions. The answer is obvious. In other words, what he's saying here is, listen, you should resolve in-house conflicts because we are called to imitate Christ's willingness to suffer. Now, through the ages, there have been Christians who, who knew they were supposed to follow Christ and, and be willing to suffer, so they would actually have someone with their friends crucify them. I'm so committed to Jesus, go ahead and nail me to a cross. What a stupid thing to do. That's not what the issue is. The issue is to say, no, Lord, I... I'm willing to be crucified because I know that you've saved me and I know that you love me. I'd be willing to do that, but it's more than that. I'm willing to suffer in relationships. Was Jesus wrongly accused? Yes or no? Was Jesus wrongly convicted? Yes or no? Could Jesus done something about that? And he chose instead to suffer wrong. Can you see why it's really basic to Paul that this is how we ought to be in our conflicts with each other? Are willing to resolve in-house. Paul talks about this, I think, in detail really well in Romans chapter 12. He gets some really practical stuff. You can, it'll be on the screen, but you can read the whole context later on. It's a great little section. Romans chapter 12, Paul writes, Repay no one evil for evil. And I think I should say this too. Sometimes we read these verses as if it's us versus the world. It's not. It's how we deal with each other in-house. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Yep. This is how it works. I'm willing to suffer, Lord, if it benefits this brother and helps him to know you are trustworthy. Now, just so you know, this is not something that... that uh, it's just theoretical. When I was a, a, an associate pastor of a church in California, and uh, there was a situation where a deacon in our church, um, I noticed, I was standing in the back when we were having, passing out communion, and I noticed he, when I went to pass to a person, he gave this really bad look to this guy, and he walked around him and didn't pass him the communion elements. And I thought, does he know something I don't know? Or he should have talked to one of us. That's a bit harsh. So afterwards, I asked him about it. And he told me about the situation. He says, I, this guy started his own business. I go, yeah, I heard about that. He started his business a couple years ago, and he asked me and a couple other guys to invest X amount of dollars per thing. We each put the same amount, him and the three of us. Well, the business has gone bust. We've lost all of our money. And he's like, well, sorry, that's just the way business works. That's his attitude. I am not having communion with that man. This guy's a deacon. Man, I was like, oh, here we go. And I had to call this brother. I had to call him to repentance. I had to say, bro, you got to, you got to forgive this guy. I said, uh, you know, if you need some mediation, if you feel like he didn't fulfill his end of a contract, we can talk about that. It's t- totally legit to do that. But he says, no, it's not. That we didn't have a contract. We just all agreed that we'd invest. We all thought it would turn out really well. And I go, well, then... Is everybody else mad? Of course they're mad. Well, he lost too. Well, yeah, but. <coughs> Make a long story short, what ended up having to happen is we had to ask that deacon to step down from being a deacon for a season until he could deal with his heart. The good news is he did forgive this brother. And they did get restored to fellowship. And I have to say to you, it really taught this deacon to walk in a humility I had not seen in him before. But I'll tell you, this stuff is real. It happens. We resolve conflicts in-house. Now, what else? Here's the second thing in verses 9 and 10, or actually verses 8 to 10, because I want to repeat verse 8 on purpose. We normalize. Listen, this is, again, this is one of the big changes Paul's going to, I think, unpack for us when we believe God's past and future promises for us, when we, when we we live for him in light of those realities, both what he's done for us in the past, what he's promised to do for us in the future. This is how this should transform us presently. Here's another big way. We normalize faithful repentance. Let me read verse 8 again, especially the last part of verse 8. Follow me. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And then verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So now, who are the unrighteous? Now, verse 1, who are the unrighteous? It's obviously a reference to those who are unbelievers, who don't yet put their faith in Jesus. Paul's not necessarily making a blanket statement that unbelievers are automatically less moral than believers. There is some general truth to that, at least in the sense of that, that 
we should be moved morally, not just horizontally, but also vertically, which is something that unbelievers just aren't there yet. But that's not his point. His point is not making a moral judgment. His point is making, in a sense, a religious judgment or a judgment based on a relationship with God. Are they right with God or not? And so in this context, in this context, unrighteous is speaking, first of all, of someone who doesn't actually have saving faith, which means they've never repented. But here's why this is important. Because we really need to identify who these unbelieving are or who these unrighteous are. Because Paul's making a really strong statement. He's saying to these believers in Corinth, don't you recognize that unbelievers don't inherit the kingdom of God? Now, this is, I don't think in the context of Corinthians, this is Paul saying, you're just about to lose your salvation. I don't think that's the case here. I'm not talking about the debate of whether or not someone can lose their salvation. I'm just saying, I don't think that's the context here. The reason I, don't say, that, I say that is because if you go back to verse 1, in fact, actually, I think that's going to be on the screen. Yeah, it will be. In, in chapter 1, in verses 8 and 9 of Corinthians, Paul, Paul writes, God will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul starts the letter by saying, I am fully assured God's going to finish what he started in you. So Paul's not trying to dangle them over hell. That's not his point. But what does he say? We, got, we don't want to, again, we don't want to, as they say, dole the edge of the sword. Verse 9 still, what does he say? He says, listen, do not be deceived. Because why? What does he say? These unrighteous unbelievers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul's not saying you're just about to lose your salvation. But Paul is saying, listen, every real believer repents. They turn from their sin. Every single one of them. None of us outgrow repentance ever. And repentance, that is turning away from your sin, turning to God. Repentance, listen, is about us recognizing that this sin had a hold on me, but now God has a hold on me through Jesus. So I'm saying no to that and saying yes to him. That's what repentance is about. If you think, listen, if you think that repentance is kind of just, ah, you got to do that when you were really bad before you started going to church and stuff. If that's the way you look at repentance, or repentance is important for those who didn't grow up in the church and they're not as moral as maybe I am. If that's the way you look at repentance, you need to hear what Jesus says to his disciples. Listen to this. In John chapter, I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 13, Jesus says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's what Jesus said. See, the reality is, listen, if we're going to normalize faithful repentance, we've got to understand who the unrighteous are. There are those who don't believe, and because they don't believe, they don't repent. Faithful repentance is, I believe that Jesus paid for my sins, so I'm going to turn away from those sins, I'm going to turn to him. That's faithful repentance. You guys following me? So it starts with that, but listen, it grows with a rightly practiced repentance. We don't outgrow it, 
We learn to do it better. Again, verse 9. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, Paul says. You know who the easiest person, you know who is the easiest person to deceive? Yourself. Listen, this is what, what James writes in James chapter 1. He says, Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls, but be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourself. I think one of the mistakes we have is because when we use the language of faith, we think it's about sort of things we make an immense assent to, but it's really about who we trust. Who do we trust? Do we trust not just an historical Jesus that lived and taught certain things, Not just trusting an historical Jesus, but the historical Jesus who is alive today. That as much as he historically was crucified, he was also historically resurrected, seen historically resurrected, and ascended into heaven historically. That's the Jesus we trust. That he rules from on high. That he sent his Holy Spirit. And so because we trust him, we do what he says. And if we say, no, I think I believe in Jesus, but we don't do what he says, we're deceiving ourselves. You understand? Now, now the, understand this too, okay? Paul's saying this, why? He's trying to help the Corinthians repent of their unwillingness to resolve conflict in-house. And he's putting that unwillingness to, to resolve conflict in in-house, that unwillingness to simply love your brother even when it's painful, he's putting that on the same category as what? Sexually immoral? Idolaters, people who worship little statues or false gods? Adulterers, people who have sex outside of marriage other than their spouse? Men who practice homosexuality? Thieves? Greedy? Swindlers? Drunkards? It's not a very nice list. Paul's saying those who refuse to to reconcile with each other, to resolve conflicts, even if it costs them to do so, they're in the same boat. They need to repent. Now, can you see what Paul's doing here? He loves them enough to try to help them to this place of turning back to God, to repent. Can you see how this connects to what we talked about last week in church discipline? You remember what we talked last week? I'll read it again. Galatians chapter 6 from the New Living Translation. Dear brothers and sisters, if any, any believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. But be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Can you see this is what actually Paul's trying to do? Maybe not so gently, but we have a, a sense that he's sent other letters and they weren't listening. <laughs> And he didn't want to believe that he had any authority, so he's got to be a little bit, come on, guys. The point is this, listen, as we help each other to rightly practice this this faithful repentance, as we help each other, this is how we grow. And this growth is the evidence that we actually believe his past and future promises for us. I want to grow in repentance. 
some of the sins that I've been involved in, I, I don't even want to uh, publicly say. They're, they're that shameful. And over the years, as I've found sort of having victory over some of those sins, I found that other sins replaced them that I wouldn't have put in the same category. I would have told myself, well, that's a lesser. That's not that big of a deal. That's just, this is just what happens. And God's constantly teaching me about how important it is to repent. How important it is to keep turning back, to keep saying, I don't want to serve that sin. I want to serve the Lord. Sometimes it's the sins of commission, sins I'm actually doing, bad things I'm actually doing, and God said, I want you to stop doing that, and I want you just to come to me. But sometimes it's sins of omission, things that I'm neglecting, relationships, worship, God's word, service, <coughs> things that are good things that were, are, God means for my growth and, and a corporate good. I neglect those things, and God says, I want you to repent and turn back to me and say, Lord, I'll serve any way you'd have me serve. The point is this, okay? This is not an exhaustive list, but it is a pointed one. That, that Paul is saying, you know what? In fact, let's do this. Look at that list again. Read it to yourself again. Read just these pointed ones that, that are mentioned in chapter, in verse 9 and verse 10. Look at these and ask yourself a couple questions. Which of these sins repulse me most? Look and say, I wouldn't be involved in that. And which of these sins attract you most? Well, yeah, I get that one. Because here's what you have to recognize about all these things. None of these things are love. None of them. And all of these things need to be repented of. Can you see what I mean by normalizing repentant faith? Do you need a fire and brimstone sermon before you'll repent? There's a whole, I think, I don't know if it's still around, and I don't, I'm not recommending this at all, at all, okay? So this is not a recommendation, but there was a website that a guy used to go to church here, used to always try to get me to listen to it. I, I, I didn't. I, I went on there once, but, but it was called Hard Preachers. And they were just mean. And they really thought that they were being spiritual. Being, you think you're, that's not real repentance. You're this big. You're not. They're just, it was, I've never seen anything so negative in my entire life. There was no hope. It was just like, the only hope was, how small can I make you feel? Hard preachers. That is not the point. Paul said, let's normalize what it means to say, I don't want to be a slave to sin because Jesus died, so I didn't have to be a slave to sin. I want to be a slave to Jesus because he's so good and so trustworthy. I, I, I don't want my motivations to be the short-sighted here and now, worried about, hey, I, this, this guy ripped me off here or this person made me feel bad there. I want to say, Lord, how do I walk in love even with people who don't treat me well? I want to turn to you because I try to do it in my own strength and I'm in the flesh and I got to repent of that because it's only by you and your spirit can I do this. Now, now just, let me, again, John does a good job, the Apostle John does a good job of summarizing again how this works or what motivates this kind of faithful repentance. Look at, look at 1 John chapter 3. In fact, it's going to be on the screen. Uh, John writes, beloved, we are children, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know 
that when he appears, that's Jesus, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Notice, everyone who has or who thus, thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure, as Jesus is pure. He says later on in the same chapter, no one who, who abides in him, in Jesus, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning either has seen him or know him. Do you see the order here? When you know Jesus, you've seen him as, as he's been revealed, and you know him, you think, oh man, he is my only hope. And as you learn to hope in him, that's what motivates you to faithful repentance. Are you following me? As uh, I heard an old southern, uh, southern states of American preacher say, a sheep falls in the mud, but a pig lives in the mud. <laughs> see, see here, here's the reality that we really need to, to, to do. And this is how we can help each other. Here's how we can help each other live in these big transformational truths. Listen, to encourage each other that repentance is normal. Faithful repentance is normal. Because if we really believe the gospel, listen, we should be honest with each other and be able to say to each other, oh man, that's rough. Let's turn back to God. Let's confess that as sin. Let's, let's find strength to move on. Can you see the difference between that kind of community and the community that Corinthians were practicing? I don't like you. I don't like you either. Well, you owe me money. Well, you owe me more money. Let's go to the court. Hey, everybody in town, look at us. We're going to fight as Jesus followers. Instead of this sense that says, oh, yeah, we have conflicts, man. We're, we're humans. We don't get on all the time, but we forgive each other. We love each other. We sacrifice for each other. This is what we do. And we do this only by the power of God's spirit and only because God's been so good to us to give us Jesus. <laughs> and my tablet stopped working. That's right. So now we get to the last verse, verse 11, the last point. Someone read to me the last point because I don't have any notes. And I think I can, if I know that point, I'll be able to preach this. We treasure God's grace. We treasure God's grace. See, here's what happens. When, when we realize who God is, we end up responding the way Paul's responding to these guys. Because I'll tell you what, man, I've heard so many sermons on, on these verses, 9 through 10. And they are all dangling people over the flames of hell. That's what they're doing. And listen, people get saved through these kinds of sermons. Because the truth is, apart from Christ, we are damned. And I don't want to whitewash that either, Ben. If your faith isn't in Jesus, you're still going to face God whether you believe in him or not. And that's not me trying to be harsh to you. We, we want you to still ask questions if you're not sure if you can believe this stuff or not. If you're in a place where you feel like, I don't know if it's good to be a Christian, it's been hard for me, I'm not sure if I want this or not. Hey, let's have that conversation. Let's talk. Let's pray. Let's have that conversation. But I don't want to mince words here. It's only through Jesus that any of us can be right with God. Any of us. But listen to what Paul says in verse 11. After saying, don't be deceived, man. This stuff is serious. we got to learn to normalize faithful repentance. He says, listen, and such were some 
of you. This is not Paul pointing the finger like, well, you guys were really bad. No, this is Paul saying, (laughs) do you remember what God delivered you from? Man, I do. I remember what it was like to be hopeless. It's not just even sort of delivering me from immorality. The Lord has done and is doing that. I mean, an utter hopelessness. Like, what is the point of life? I mean, feeling like I'm, I'm a moral being, that I want things to be right or wrong, but having no way to discern who gets to decide that. I, I, I mean, wondering, okay, even if I do my very best and then I die and that's it? The other hopelessness, meaninglessness of life and everything that I've looked at, every philosophy and religion, nothing matches what Jesus offers us. And he offers this to us by grace. Grace is inherently you getting what you don't deserve. Grace is inherently you getting what's based on the merits of another. And so when, when, when Paul says, listen, such were some of you, he says this as one sinner speaking to other sinners. In fact, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. It'll be on the screen. The chief of sinners. In kind of telling a story there in 1 Timothy, what's he saying? Hey, you guys, you know, man, God's grace showed up to me, and he showed up to me, and I'm the chief of sinners. Some of your versions say the foremost of sinners. So Paul's not pointing the finger. He's saying, listen, it's grace that saves even the worst of sinners. He says, listen, notice, you were washed, past tense. You were sanctified, past tense. You were justified, past tense. Now, there's sometimes when the word sanctify is, is it kind of an ongoing tense. It's, it, it's this idea of things progressing continually. But here, it's past, done. Here in this context, Paul is saying really clearly, these things are speaking of a position. That you've already been given this perfect relationship through Christ. Now, this is where it gets really hard for us to believe. Because we know in our own hearts how we actually treat God. It's not very good. How could that be a perfect relationship? And we know in our own hearts how how slow we are to trust God. And we think, how could that be a perfect relationship? And we know how far we fall short and how we treat each other. How can those things be perfect relationships? How could we possibly have a perfect relationship with God? Because this is how it's not based on what you do. It's based on what Christ has done. It's what he's done. It's grace that provides this perfect positional relationship. Man, I've I've talked about this so many times, and it's amazing how uh, when people are about to have their first child, and I talk to them about this, I say, everything's going to change. Like, yeah, yeah, we know, we know. No, everything's going to change. When you have your first child, you're going to recognize something that you didn't recognize before. You're going to recognize something about grace, something about unconditional love. Does this make any sense? Because when that child is born, and that child's done absolutely nothing for you, and you'll do anything for that child, 
you'll begin to get a hint at what it's like for that God, what kind of love that God has for you. The grace that God extends to you. A grace that makes you his child. Puts you in that perfect relationship. This is what we're called to treasure. And Paul's really clear. Listen, these things happened in the name of Jesus. That is, by the, the, the character and the authority of Jesus. Jesus was good enough to suffer wrongly in our place. Jesus is authoritative and powerful enough to rise from the dead and resurrect every single one of us. That's what he means by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, it's, it's, these things happen, this grace is given us in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. In other words, it's not just some kind of idea that's kind of on paper that we go, yes, I think I believe that. That God's Spirit works in us and takes the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done and he pours it onto our life. He applies it to us. He does it. Do you realize, listen, that God's Spirit is the one who shows you you need Jesus. And God's Spirit is the one who, who convinces you that Jesus is worthy to be trusted. And God's Spirit is the one who conv- calls you to believe. And God's Spirit is the one who equips you with the power to believe. You go, well, don't I have a choice? Yes, you do. What are you going to choose? Are you going to respond to God's Spirit and say, I want Him? Or are you going to say no again? See, Paul's pointing out these future realities, not just because of the stupid lawsuits going on in Corinth, but because of the shock of how little they value grace. Because when God begins to change us, you know what we think of grace? Nice idea. No. Oh, we glory in it. We say with the slave, the former slave captain, John Newton, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. So here's the question. Do you know this grace? Do do you believe that not just the past work of Jesus, but the future promises are realities for you? And do you believe it enough that it's actually changing your life? Are you responding to the work of the Holy Spirit? Are you willing to resolve conflicts in-house? Are you learning to practice, normalize faithful repentance? Do you treasure his grace? Father, I pray that you would help us to do this right now. Father, would you move by your Holy Spirit into our hearts right now? Because, Lord, we we are so hard-hearted. But I thank you, Lord, that your word is like fire, that consumes the, the, the weeds that, that keep good things from growing. And your word is like a hammer that breaks rock. And we pray you would burn up those things that are competing for our allegiance to you. And we pray you would break our hard hearts that we believe what you say and that we learn to walk with you. And when everybody's heads bowed and eyes closed, this is a good time for us to do some business with God. I first want to address you who 
profess to be Jesus followers. Where's God calling you to repent? To turn back to him. I just want to encourage you to do that, but do it faithfully. Don't turn back to God just out of guilt. Turn back to God because he's glorious and he's merciful and he's provided for you to be forgiven and changed. Confess. Repent for sake. Believe. Be refreshed right now. I don't care if you've been backslidden for months or years. Turn back to him right now. Jesus is still the way. He's still the truth. He's still alive. And I want to address those of you who are still not sure. I want you to really think about why. What, what is it? What is it? Is it that you found a standard of truth more trustworthy than Jesus in the scriptures? Is it that you're afraid to give up something that's precious to you? What is it? I can tell you this on the authority of Scripture, that God wants you to turn to him. If you need to do that just right now, you can pray. You can, I don't need to give you the words. Just how does a drowning man pray? Pray that way. But I want to pray for all of us now. And Father, I do thank you so much that your word is good and true and trustworthy. And we thank you that you, Lord Jesus, are good and true and trustworthy. And we ask, God, that you would help us to walk in these things today. Help us to encourage each other to deal with our conflicts in-house, even if that means we have to suffer wrong. Help us to, Lord, encourage each other to faithfully practice repentance and to be patient with each other, Lord, because we get it wrong so much. Help us be patient with each other. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us, Lord, to above all treasure grace. (laughs) Lord, because if we just would see you as, as you are, Lord, we would be so much quicker to repent. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Just pray, Father, a blessing on your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Right on. All right.